the first game after 9-11 at Shea Stadium. And we just happened to have those tickets. Uh, I was down there on on 9-11 with my colleagues. Nobody knew what was going on. Everything baseball was was up in the air. And then they announced, here's the first game we're going to have in New York. It's the Mets playing the Braves. And we had tickets. And that was pretty emotional, I would say. We were only 10 days removed from the attack. You're still stunned. But then, you know, Mike Piazza hitting the home run to win the game. Just amazing. I'm a Chicagoan. I'm not a New Yorker, but I think everybody was a New Yorker on that day. What's up, Bucketheads? Thanks for tuning in and welcome to episode number 90 of the Baseball Bucket List podcast. I'm your host, Anna DiTomaso, and each week on the show, I speak with a different baseball fan about their favorite memories, what's left on their baseball bucket list, and what the game of baseball means to them. This week, I got the chance to sit down with Tom Schneider from his office on Long Island, New York. Tom is a lifelong Cubs fan who was raised in a suburb north of Chicago, but has lived in New York for over two decades. He's the co-founder of Bloomberg Sports, which was a tech suite that kept track of pretty much everything a front office could need to run a ball club and spit it out in a much more digestible way. This included scouting data, stats, videos, and much, much more. We chat about some incredible opportunities he had while working with MLB teams, hear some entertaining stories about his brushes with former players and owners, and get into why scouting is such a huge component of managing a franchise. Tom was a lot of fun. I learned a ton about what actually goes into running a front office. I know you're going to really enjoy this one, so without further ado, sit back, relax, and enjoy some baseball banter with Tom Schneider. Tom, thank you so much for joining us today on the Baseball Bucket List. How are things on Long Island? Things are are pretty good. I'll tell you what, we've had a really mild winter, and I don't like the winter. I'm from Chicago. It's very cold in the winter, so even coming out here was a little bit of a blessing, but it does get wintry not this year. So I'm. it just makes me that more excited to be out of football season and getting into baseball season. Man, it is close. We are days away from the start of spring training games. And I think we here in Texas got your winter. So it must have just, you know, done some weird flight path and found its way down here because we've had a, we've had a rough one. But uh, I don't blame you. You've, you've had your, your fair share of winters in the past, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I, I'll, I'll be okay. You know, we, we, if we forget what snow looks like for a season, I'm okay. I'll miss it, right? But we'll get it back again, I'm sure. Oh, yeah. All right. So let's dive in then. The first question I always start with is, how is it that you fell in love with the game of baseball? Oh, my gosh. That's such a great question. It's always been a part of my life. My parents, uh, my my mom especially, believe it or not, big baseball fan, um, we, at the very young age, going to games in Chicago, not just, uh, well, we're on the, we, I grew up in the north, north of Chicago, not Chicago proper, in a suburb called Wilmette. And so generally, you're a Cubs fan, but we had family members who were White Sox fans. So my earliest memory of a game is going to a White Sox game, not a Cubs game. Um, we had a family friend who was a coach for the White Sox. So it was, you know, that extra little uh, bonus, I guess, if you will, as a kid meeting somebody who is a uniform player. So it's just always been around. And even when he got traded to, uh, well, got traded, he went to work for a couple other teams, one being the Pirates. That's where I really was getting into it. I was 10 years old. Pirates went to the World Series. So, you know, just having those connections and, of course, playing as a kid, you know, just was just encouragement, you know, from all all areas. 
Yeah. So I've heard that a lot from Cubs fans. Ironically, it sounds like usually the first game they go to is, generally speaking, a White Sox game. I mean, I know now that it's obviously much cheaper to get to, I guess it's called guaranteed rate field by by now, than it is to get to Wrigley. Was that true when you were a kid? Did that have something to do with it? Or was all the connection with your family and your family friend there? Yeah, it was more of the connection. I think back in the day um, when I was a kid, so this was, again, the 70s, Cubs weren't the draw that they are now. Wrigley Field wasn't the draw. I remember, uh, you know, 3,000 people being the, you know, the, the attendance for a game. And that was, again, when I was a kid. But I, you're, you're right. I think it's just having the family go there, the family friend who would take us. And, you know, part of that, too, is it was more accessible in the sense that you could go any time of the day with the White Sox. For the Cubs, you really had to go during the day because there was no night baseball. And so during the school year, you had to go on the weekends if if you had the, you know, if something wasn't competing with it, like Little League. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I hadn't thought about that before, but that's absolutely right because they were one of the last ballparks to get lighting. Is that right? They were the last, yes, and and by a by a long shot. I mean, it was 1988 before they got lights. I'm in college by this time, of course, dead set against it because what's more beautiful than Wrigley Field on a sunny day, you know? Yeah. Um, but but quickly realized, boy, you know, you can drink more. I think at night than during the day, and and that you know, as a college student, that was okay. So we quickly changed our mind. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so you grew up on the north side in a suburb of Chicago, but your first games on the south side, who is the team that you fell in love with as your appreciation for the game started to grow? Yeah, so it had to be, you know, 1980s Cubs, you know, Ryan Sandberg, everybody hears about the Ryan Sandberg game. Um, I remember where I was when that happened. That was in uh, June of 84, Saturday afternoon, game of the week. Remember before ESPN had baseball, it was once a week on NBC. You know, these are things that happened. And uh, that was a special game. But just it was it was a great time. 84, they go to the playoffs. Uh, 89, they go to the playoffs. So, you know, just kind of getting closer to the sun, right, of the World Series, um, but with some great players, Mark Grace, when he came up, you know, that was my sister's favorite player for good reasons. And, you know, just just it was the 1980s Chicago Cubs. And by that time, it was a time where I could hop on the L and go to a game without my parents. Right. There's a little bit of independence. So I go with my friend who's also a lifelong Cubs fan and still is to this day. And we would hop on the L and go in the bleachers when you could afford it. So it was it was fun. Yeah. I could definitely see how that would uh, kind of sway your persuasions there towards the Cubs a little more. Now that you're up on Long Island, I've been educated by Tom for listeners that it's on Long Island and not in Long Island, which uh, makes a lot more sense. Now that you're on Long Island, how often are you getting to ball games in person? I mean, is there any minor league up there? Are you headed into the city at all? You know, how do you get your fix now? Right. It is definitely going into the city. And really, it's it's not even what I consider the city. City to me is Manhattan, but uh, Queens is part of the city. So we get into Queens, see Mets games maybe two, three times a year. Yankee Stadium at least once a year. I have kids, so the kids are New Yorkers. 
so I have a, a Yankees fan and then I have a Mets fan. And uh, as, a, as one of my, my daughter's a Yankees fan, my son's a Mets fan. So we do both. But any chance we can get when we're traveling, of course, we want to see some baseball. There's no real minor leagues out here, although there is an independent league. The Long Island Ducks are not too far from our house. It's a 10, 15 minute ride and nice. real easy, real fun. So. Yeah, indie ball is one of the best kept secrets in America, as far as I'm concerned. What a what a cool experience. It's always just so low pressure, but so much fun. So I'm jealous that they're so close because the <laughs> the closest indie team to me is just over an hour away, which I still feel fortunate. Like that's still close to me in my, you know, in my book. But uh, it'd be nice if I could just hop in the car and be there in 10 minutes. Right. And, and for the kids, for younger kids, you know, it's a good it gets good way for them to see more baseball. You do get some ex-major leaguers in there, too. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can see some people that you might have seen in a different uniform uh, in the majors come through indie leagues, too. So that's a great thing, too. And there's so much so much, I don't know, more accessible, obviously, smaller stadiums. Yeah, definitely. What is the dynamic like of having one of each in your house? You've got a Yankee fan and your your daughter and a Mets fan and your son. And I mean, like, I imagine there's some contention there. Your son's got to be feeling pretty good about the way the Mets are looking right now. What's that like? Yeah, it's it's fine. They don't take it that seriously. I mean, they're very knowledgeable about the game. They're, they 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 follow the game and, and, you know, to the point where if I'm not keeping up, they're, they're laying information down on me, which is fine. <laughs> you know, I, it's it's what becomes important. But there's no, you know, if I say I'm going to a Mets game, my daughter will go, even though she's a Yankees fan, she'll enjoy it. She'll keep score the whole bit. It's not like we can't live together, I guess is the point. Good. Yeah. Well, that's good to hear. So one of the things that we talked about briefly over email before we we jumped into the call was that you are the co-founder of Bloomberg Sports. Is that right? Yes. So um, I was uh, worked at Bloomberg for a very short time, actually, before we started this project. And and what it was, was I was more of a what would you would consider a data visualization specialist or a chartist of the financial markets. So I was very experienced with charting, charting financial data, making data easier to, to get access to or to interpret. And so my wife's cousin was an agent, and I was talking to him about some of the things that we were doing at Bloomberg. And I said, what about uh, baseball? You know, could baseball benefit from this this kind of analysis? And we were talking, and he said, you know what? That's not a bad idea. So Bloomberg was very accepting of new ideas. If you had an idea, it didn't matter really where you came from, because Mike Bloomberg is an entrepreneur at heart, and so are the people around him. So I, I had this idea of saying, what if we built a Bloomberg terminal for baseball? And what that means is for the front office or for the players or for the agents, any professional. And so we ran it by, uh, it, it got shot down initially, but then what happened was the financial crisis in 2008 happened mm-hmm. and Bloomberg was open to going into other areas. And so we picked it up again. And we started building it in 2009, like late 2009. Maybe, oh boy, I can't, the, the years run together. I'm trying <laughs> to think. Yeah, it must have been late 2008 and we officially were there 2009. And we started marketing to the professional teams. And we also had a, um, 
what you call commercial side. So we were building fantasy baseball league tools as well, kind of to finance the part that was the professional. And we had different levels of success for both of those endeavors, but I was more in charge of the uh, professional side of things. What kinds of tools would say a, a baseball team, a front office or something like that utilize on that platform? You know, what's the pitch towards the teams? What are they getting out of the data? And where might that, I guess, impact fans somehow? A lot of the things they were already doing, they were doing it piecemeal. Mm. By piecemeal, I mean, they would get their stats from Stats Inc. They would get their college data from college splits. They would get their scouting data. Well, they wouldn't get their, they would provide their own scouting data, right? Because scouts write reports, but they would do it through a through a different vendor, a different software program, which was somewhat archaic at the time. Basically what it came down to was all their information was coming in from all these different places. And it would take the, the people in the front office time and a lot of time to normalize that data and put it in a report, right? Because it all comes in in different forms. And so our thought was, well, we could do that. We could ingest all the data and digest it and spit it out in a way that the teams want it. So they'll use it for scouting, scouting reports. They'll use it for video. So we tagged video uh, data to video so that you could look at Give me all the fastballs, let's say a player has seen from a certain type of handedness that resulted in uh, this pitch, ca- uh, this pitch result from this pitch. Ca- you know, you could dissect the data, yeah, that, right? That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was it was fun. So uh, that was the pitch. You know, you basically have a one stop shop and, and some of the teams were already doing that better than other teams. Um, so we really made an inroads with about seven or eight teams initially and but all the other all the teams were we i think of the 30 teams 29 were customers within a year there was one team that was a holdout and made sense that they were the holdout and it was you know it was constantly trying to innovate and get them what they needed what they were doing already but then innovating so that they would get value out of switching over systems because that's expensive that's time consuming are you able to share any of the teams that maybe were early adopters and perhaps saw, you know, pretty quick ROI for making that switch to the platform? Or is that all kind of confidential? Oh, I think it's it's something I can share. I mean, I can tell you the teams that I was working with closely were uh, the Royals, the Diamondbacks, uh, the Cubs moved over eventually, Dodgers. We were doing different things for different teams. Um, Marlins were involved. I know I miss, oh, the Nationals, the Nationals were there. So it was, you know, with those teams that were going in a little more in depth, we were spending a lot more time with than, say, some of the other teams. And of course, being in the backyard of the Mets and the Yankees, that was easy, right? That was a a subway ride if we needed to speak to them. (laughs) But generally, it was uh, a lot of travel, especially during spring training, right? Because all the teams are there, you had to be there. So I mean, as a fan it was a dream right it was you know you're you're sitting in these rooms i mean i can remember reaching out to the new owner of the cubs and forming a relationship there and and he was just so generous and with his time and so you know i think we all wanted the same thing right as a cubs fan you want the cubs to win but 
you can't say that as somebody serving other event, other teams. Um, but you know, it was, uh, it was a dream job for a while. Yeah, it was great. It was awesome. Who was the holdout? Can you share that with us? Yeah. It's, I mean, it was the Red Sox. Mm. It very, you know, very smart people over there, very smart people in every organization. Yeah. But they were, they were already doing this, you know, actually the team that kind of surprised me that was doing it the earliest was the Cleveland Indians. Wow. They had, they, they had their own system, so to speak. Um, so I, I think since the early nineties. Now, when we were doing this, this was late 2000, you know, aughts, if you will, Moneyball was coming out. So, you know, that was the hype. That's, that's kind of how we sold it to the, this, the board was, Hey, Moneyball, look, you know, Michael Lewis was a Bloomberg staff writer, or he was a writer for Bloomberg. I don't know if he was staff writer, but you know, it's in our backyard, right? So, oh yeah, Moneyball, that sounds great. Well, baseball is this much, I would say 10 to 30%, you know, uh, Moneyball type stuff. It's all scouting other than that. So yeah, we learned real fast. Right. It's good. A part of me, I guess, was hoping that you were going to say that uh, you sold the platform to the the Rays, and that was what took them from being literally the worst team in baseball in 2007 to a World Series berth in 08. But it's before our time. <laughs> surely there was more going on. So, I mean, you mentioned a dream job. Realistically, I mean, you're spending time with the you know big decision makers in an organization. I'm mm -hmm. sure there are some stories to share. I'm sure you have dozens of them. Is there anything that comes to mind as kind of, you know, a crazy story that happened either with front office, players, managers, anything like that? I will say coolest part was when I got to introduce my parents to the owner of the Cubs. You know, I met him up for a ball game and my, my dad and I are talking like outside the ballpark and we're right outside the entrance to the executive offices mm -hmm. and my mom goes hey that's that's tom ricketts so i go hey tom and he comes on over and he goes oh hey tom you know and it's like <laughs> you know my parents didn't expect that right and he was living in Wilmette, where i grew up and where my parents used to live and so my dad was talking to him about politics and the little town that we grew up on and you know that was to me it was like okay all the all the stuff all the drama, all the whatever, it's worth it because my parents got to meet Tom Ricketts, the owner of the Cubs, you know? So that was, that was a cool, cool night. There are a lot of stories like that. When you're working in baseball, like I met Bobby Bonilla right after he got his first check, you know, he gets like a million dollars. Bobby Bonilla day. Mets. Yeah. Right. Bobby yeah. Bonilla day. Right. I, I met him all-star weekend of the first year of the check. So I was with Don Slott, who was a catcher for the Yankees. And not at the time, he, he he has a software business. So we were meeting with him and Bobby comes up and, it, you know, Don says, hey, Bobby, you know, meet my friends, whatever. And we meet him and then he walks away and he said, did, did he look happy to you? And I'm like, yeah, I guess. He's smiling. He's like, he just got his first check of 25, right? And then, oh, right. You know, so that was really cool seeing Bobby Bonilla, you know, <laughs> but, um, you know, just little stuff like that. I think for me, it was just eye-opening, like, Again, being, I got to go to a lot of scouts meetings, right? Going and sitting with the scouts and hearing, if you watch Moneyball and you see that it's pretty spot on about what happens in those meetings. They, and, you know, I think for me, doing that at Wrigley Field, you know, when they had their scouts meeting at Wrigley Field in one of the uh, 
rooms that I'd never been to before, right? But been been in every part of the ballpark except, of course, the inner workings. Sitting in there with all the Cubs scouts was just, you know, again, a dream job. I think baseball's so unique in that way too. When you when you talk about scouting and you talk about the draft process, it's so different than any other sport. You see a kid get drafted in the NBA or the NFL and immediately within the next year or so, they're on the field for the top level professional team. With baseball, you're drafting so many more guys. There's obviously so many more rungs to climb in the ladder, a lot more to go wrong over a broader span of time and a, a longer ramp time until they're on the field for the MLB club making a difference for the team. So I, I would think that there is probably a lot more that goes into how some of those decisions are made, especially the big contracts where there's still potential for things to go wrong or things not to work out. All of this data going in, risk assessment and ROI, trying to just kind of formulate what is actually going to happen. Right. And, and so that's why scouting is so important because you're signing somebody who could be five to seven years away from even making a team, right? And making a major league team. It's why it's so important for the number of eyes, you know, how many eyes have seen this player and why is that important? Well, you can make a better judgment about a player, the more people who have seen him, because they're not all going to go on the same day and see the same performance. They're going to see the performance over time in that season, right? So beginning January till June draft, you've got all these scouts on the move in the United States and other places, right? So it's very important to get that information from those scouts up to, you know, to the area scout, to the cross checker, to the upper management of the front front office, up to the general manager. Because when draft day comes, they all better be prepared knowing which players can do what and how they would fill their gaps or what they can do with those players if they do get to draft them and they don't need them, right? And who, you know, it's it's this whole chess game. It's really fascinating. But that's why scouting was so important when we were building this tool was because you can't have reports missing. You can't have reports not upload because every day these scouts have to see players and every night they have to write the reports. Very crucial to a team. Yeah, definitely. So it's, it's fascinating. You're right. Yeah. I mean, it's the building blocks for the franchise, not today or tomorrow, but for, for many, many, many years to come. So it's it's huge. Absolutely. I mean, we've talked a lot about the statistics of the baseball team as an athletic entity, but is there a side of it that also incorporates kind of like the financials of the the team economically, let's say? Right. So we didn't we didn't do much of that at all. We yeah. were focused on the front office. So the front office is going to be about the baseball right? Can they put a winning team on the field? Right. The business side was kept separate. So we didn't deal with that with the exception is when I would talk to the owners or, or, you know, a couple teams, one of them being of course the Cubs, we did speak about, okay, when you buy the team, you know, what are the, some of the things you might do to, to improve the experience for fans? And we talked about that a little bit. 
not saying that he was leaning in my ear all the time, right? <laughs> but when I'd see him, he knew I was a fan. And hey, what do you think of this? That kind of thing. So there is an aspect of it, but our business didn't didn't center around that because yeah. it's it was enough to be the front office tool that we wanted to be. And that extended to not just to front office, but to broadcasters. That extended to players. That extended to agents as well. Yeah. So I I guess you're speaking about a lot of this in the past tense. So I'm assuming that it's not your current job, that you, you've gotten into something else. Is that true? Right. How did that happen? So what happened with Bloomberg Sports is eventually – Bloomberg Sports went into other sports as well because it's not Bloomberg Baseball, it's Bloomberg Sports. Right. Um, so they were uh, different parts of the company and it wasn't a very big company. So we were a startup within a very large company. So it was a really interesting dynamic. Um, we had the big pockets of Bloomberg so we could fly out and see this player, fly out and see this team if we needed. But there were still um, expectations that I think were more from the, not our startup side, but from a mature business, which were a little unrealistic. Um, so we went into other sports, went into soccer, football, if you want, uh, cricket. Um, I led the charge into horse racing. Okay. So another aspect was meeting with all the horse racing people and developing a tool that's eventually got developed called Race Lens. But it was more of a, how do you handicap a race or, or what are the things you look for? Here are the races that match that criteria. So um, again, just based on tools that were built in the Bloomberg Terminal for finance, let's just put it into the sports arena. Eventually, they sold the company to Stats Inc. So, so versions of Bloomberg Sports still exist under Stats Inc. But I went back to the company at that time to go back into the financial field doing what I was doing. Okay. So, I mean, it sounds like you must enjoy finance too then, but what a cool little segue, a chance to do something really cool with something that you've always loved for a handful of years and just have a great time building something cool. I mean, that sounds like a dream to me. It was, it was. And it afforded me some of the things that, you know, talking about baseball bucket list, some of the things that might be on a bucket list, like all-star games, right? Yeah. Like winter meetings. Those are fun. And by the way, you don't need a ticket to the winter meetings. You could just go, right? <laughs> Show up at the hotel. I mean, heck, that's a, how a lot of young people in baseball that are working for the teams, that's how a lot of them, my friend Sig, he's now the assistant general manager of the Orioles. But he got his, he was a NASA scientist and he went to a winter meetings uninvited, right? And one person out of all the people he gave his thesis to, one person bit, and now he's the assistant general manager of the Orioles. Oh, what a cool story. Right? I love that. Yeah. And, and you know, you too could go to the winter meetings and you just have to know where they are. And generally, okay, you know what? I'm going to hang out in the bar, right? right? And, and bring a friend, start talking to people. And that's that's how you get in, right? Yeah. Um, that's winter meetings were fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's cool. Um what else? Uh, well, World Series. Yeah. Right? So uh, my first World Series game, 2011, St. Louis Cardinals, oh, Texas boy. Rangers, yep. game six. Yeah. Oh, God. So <laughs> it was, uh, I got tickets last minute through a colleague of mine whose wife worked at MLB Network and said, okay, I'm going to take a day off from work. I'm going to take a half day. Fly out that afternoon, go see the game that night. First thing in the morning, fly back. And I only miss a day of work, right? Well, that game was postponed one night. And 
ended up being the uh like one of the most exciting world series games extra innings um i went with my friend very close friend who's a cardinals fan you know and then after party we we were in the executive after party through my friend again my friend Siggy was with the cardinals and you know here it is it's like what am i doing here right i'm a i'm a first of all i'm a cubs fan right but i can get past that right i'm working in baseball <laughs> what am i doing talking to these people who brought this team who they were thinking of disbanding at the uh at you know labor day weekend well should we go for it yeah they did and they ended up winning it all so that was my first world series game was game six that's not a bad one to be at unless you are a texas rangers fan and then it's quite possibly <laughs> the worst game you could ever be at but i mean it sounds like you've done a lot is there a single baseball memory that comes to mind as being your favorite baseball memory that kind of sticks out above the others it's tough. I'll tell you, I would like to say game three of the World Series, going with my friend Tony. Uh, again, I've known him since I was pre-kindergarten, Cubs fan, you know, long history there. Uh, game three of 2016. And, I, you know, win or lose, we were there, right? They lost. That's okay. But I will say I was at the first game after 9-11 at Shea Stadium. And we just happened to have those tickets. You know, I bought them earlier for some colleagues. Uh, I was down there on, on 9-11 with my colleagues. Nobody knew what was going on. The whole, everything, baseball was was up in the air. And then they announced, here's the first game we're going to have in New York. It's the Mets playing the Braves. And we had tickets. And, you know, they were, you know, people want to go to those tickets after that. That was announced, so we we were there, and that was pretty emotional, I would say. That sticks out as probably, I won't say it's my favorite memory, like it's a great, it is, it's an interesting memory, because it was kind of cathartic to be there. We were only 10 days, yeah. 10 days removed from the attack, so it was, you're still stunned. But then, you know, Mike Piazza hitting the home run to win the game, you know, we uh, won it in the eighth, but just amazing for, you know, amazing New York story, and I'm not a, I'm a Chicagoan. I'm not a New Yorker, but I would think everybody was a New Yorker on that day. Yeah, that's a very good way to put it. And and to, uh, man, it's kind of hard not to get choked up when you start thinking about that, you know? Um, yeah. Wow. That's, that's incredibly cool that you were there. Wow. That's just super, super powerful. I think of uh, George Bush throwing that first pitch at Yankee Stadium too, not not long after that, and just uh, thinking about Sammy Sosa running running around with the American flag and lots of imagery about kind of how baseball was there after that that time was kind of just um, a comfort, you know, kind of like wrapping you up like a big hug and and making you kind of feel like maybe there was going to be some normalcy again, and and that's from someone who was far removed from New York City at the time. So I can only imagine what it felt like to folks who were living and working, you know, in in the city. Yeah, it, it was, you know, again, I, we hadn't lived in New York for more than a year, almost, yeah, it was about a year, yeah. right? Um, I think it was almost exactly a year we were, we were move, officially moved to New York when that happened. And so I felt a little bit like, well, I'm not a New Yorker, but, you know, I'm with New Yorkers. People have lived here and I kind of felt like being down there. OK, this is OK to be here. But, you know, Rudy Giuliani, who was a mayor at the time, he walked right in front of us going into the ballpark and 
Liza Minnelli was there. And I'm again, I'm not a big Liza Minnelli fan. I mean, I but it was just like, well, this is New York. This is how New York is handling this. This is people are coming out for this. It was special. But again, not not a favorite is is a different there's a different word than favorite, right? But it's the most, I think the most uh, cherished, I guess, memory is what I have. I totally understand what what you mean by that because yeah, it's not something that you look back on and you go, gee, that was a great time. I'm really glad that that awful thing happened so I could, you know, be there for that. But <laughs> just to 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 be there, I mean, like what an incredibly powerful moment to to be a part of. So wow, that's incredible. A, li- a little more personal, I will say. When I was doing the sports thing, one of the most I, I was doing some business in Chicago as we did. And uh, because we were pitching our, our platform to broadcasters, we had a meeting with Dave Kaplan. Dave Kaplan did sports in um, Chicago. And we had a lunch meeting with Dave. And uh, during the lunch meeting, he says, wow, this is fantastic. Let me call my friend Steve up, Steve Stone. Now, I grew up watching Steve Stone next to Harry Carey. Uh-huh. And, you know, just adored Steve Stone. He basically taught kids my age at the at the time how how baseball worked right you always have the color guy and then you have the analyst who steve stone being a pitcher knew the knew the game so steve comes over like 10 minutes later and has lunch with us already you know this is just like wow what a surprise and then later that day i had a a meeting with dave otto dave otto was the radio guy for the cubs and and again through my wife's cousin who represented him i i kind of interacted with him before but you know, getting to talk baseball with this announcer. And then that night, my, my colleague Barb and I, we went to a White Sox game, right? Because Cubs were out of town. And then the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup for the first <laughs> time in years. So it was like this amazing Chicago day for me personally, but also for the city with the Blackhawks. And, you know, that, I'll never forget that. Yeah. Sounds like one of those perfect days. I hope there was some deep dish pizza involved somewhere, somewhere in that day. I know there was. I know there was. (laughs) Tom, it sounds like you've done a lot of very, very cool things. You've been present for some very incredible moments. Is there one thing that is still at the very top of your baseball bucket list that is, you know, the thing you got to see, the place you got to go, the person you got to meet? Yeah. So I'll I'll put it like this. Um, It's certainly about completing that 30 ballpark list. So uh, I got close. I got three three parks away, um, Dodger Stadium, Petco Park, and then Braves. I didn't see the, um, was it Fulton County? Was that the one or one after that? But Turner, now it's yeah. changed, right? Now it's Truist Park. Yep. And then add the new, or I'm sorry, uh, Globe Life Field uh, is one I have to get to, right? You know all about that. <laughs> yeah. um, so it still remains Petco, Dodger Stadium, and then I have to go see the, and I don't mean have to, but I, I, you know, to get it off my list, I want to go see the Rangers again. Good news is I have friends and family in all those places. So I'm hoping we'll do that every year. We kind of try to figure out, okay, how's the, what, what's the quickest way if we won the lottery or we're retired, <laughs> how can we go see all the parks? You know, can we do it in 30 days? Um, this year it's really tough. I don't think it can be done. Um, so I would say that is my bucket list. I had a chance to go to Dodger Stadium. I was in L.A. for the All-Star Game in 2010. And that Sunday, the Cubs were playing the Dodgers, and I chose to go to the Futures game and the softball game, you know, the celebrity softball game. So, you know, that was fun. 
all-star games are fun but uh that's my bucket list is finishing finally finishing those 30 30 stadiums yeah well you're not far off i mean the the two california ones they shouldn't be that hard i know they're far apart in california but uh, they shouldn't be too hard to get to. And then I would say you have to go to Globe Life Field because that's probably the appropriate verbiage to use is I don't think many folks are excited about it, but it's air conditioned. So there's that. <laughs> have you? So you've been? Oh, yeah, several times. Yeah, Actually, my first game at Globe Life was game three of the 2020 World Series. So first time I was oh, at wow. that ballpark, the Rangers were nowhere to be seen. Right, right. There you go. That's amazing. That's yeah. crazy. Yeah, because everything was shortened, right? right exactly. Uh, well, because everything was special during COVID. Yeah, exactly. Right. Oh, wow. Now that's now see that I think that's a bucket list item. Oh, it definitely. See was. two teams, two major team, major league teams who are not in their native ballpark, right? Yeah, it was it was fun. I mean, I got to check off a couple of things. That was the first time I like it brought me back to all thirty ballparks. It was my first World Series game. I got to see my Rays play in the World Series. They also lost that game and the whole thing. And then uh, it was my first neutral site game. So it was like a four for one. (laughs) That's amazing. And I like how you said it brought you back to all 30. Yeah. Right? Right. So when did you complete your bucket list of 30? Just curious. The first go round was 2018. The last one I did was um, it was Atlanta. Yeah, 2018, about two weeks before the season ended, I saw the the Braves play there. So, And then it was easy to wow. get back to Arlington because it's just 45 minutes away. So we'll, we'll see where, where the next one opens. Right. And what about expansion? I mean, we yeah, hear these right. things about expansion. Could, could it be Montreal? Could it be Nashville? Carolinas need a ballpark, yeah, right? I, right. Yeah. You know, where could it be? Yeah. Um, somewhere in the in the West, right? Maybe somewhere in like uh, Oklahoma City or or you know Utah. There's so many places it could be. I love I love talking about. That. Yeah. There's a lot of options. I think it's going to be Nashville. If I if I had to put money on it, I think the next expansion will be Nashville. But I'm not sure. What do you think? If you had to if you had to guess. Well, I, I think Nashville's a smart guess. I think Montreal is a is a really a hope that they I, I just don't think they're gonna do that again for mm-hmm. a while. Nashville, I think the way demo, the dem- demographics of the country are happening, Nashville's seeing huge growth. So it seems like to me they could support it. Yeah, that's why I think it'll be Nashville. But we'll see. Charlotte's booming too, so who knows? Yeah. 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 And there's definitely space, I think, to build all of this. Mm-hmm. you know, in Charlotte and in Nashville. We'll see. Nobody asked me, but we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> That's where you would put it, Anna. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Tom, I've had a blast chatting with you. If people want to follow along with you online, or I know you've got your hands in some stuff outside of the baseball world, where can people find you? Right. So my Twitter handle is the Tom Schneider at the Tom Schneider. That's probably the best place. Um, that's where I generally tend to share. Um, I used to do Facebook back when Facebook was the way to go. It was great. You go to a ballpark, you'd, you'd share a photo and you'd find out who your friends are also at the game and, you know, meet them up after. But um, right now it's Twitter, probably uh, where to go for that. Nice. Okay. I can't thank you enough for making time to 
to talk baseball. I really enjoyed it. I just can't wait to see how long it takes you to get to all 30. I don't think it's going to be that long. I feel like maybe maybe I got the itch now. I'm I'm hoping I'm I'd, I'd love to do it this year. We'll see. But um Anna, if you're out in New York, of course, we'll go see a game. Um we'll do it upright and uh maybe even a Ducks game, you know? Yeah. Come out here. I wouldn't say stay in Long Island, you know, stay in the city, but you can come out here on the Long Island Railroad. We'll go see a baseball game. That sounds awesome. And let me know when you're here in Arlington because we'll we can do the same. Okay. Anna, I will take you up on that. <laughs> Thanks, Tom. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been a great, great time. And that will wrap up this episode of the Baseball Bucket List podcast. Special thanks to Tom Schneider for joining us today and sharing those memories and all of that insight about Bloomberg Sports and what it takes to run the front office of a baseball franchise. If this sounds like something you'd like to do, if you think you might like to be a guest on the show, head to baseballbucketlist.com slash podcast and fill out an application. I'd absolutely love to hear from you. While you're there, make sure to spend some time checking out the site, create a free membership, connect with other fans, build your baseball bucket list, and pin those ballpark visits. That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next episode.